Please help keep the Trail Less Traveled ad-free by supporting the show on Patreon. You can donate as little as $3 a month in order to support the podcast and international outreach programs. Learn more by visiting traillesstraveled.net. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are, I am, rowing across Lake Lowell, which is formed by Lowell Glacier. And I'm looking over to my right. It's a beautiful, calm day. This is absolutely a gift from the river gods and the W word gods. W word meaning W-I-N-D. We don't say it out loud because it could change everything about this day. I'm looking over at Lowell Glacier and we are on a 12 day expedition of the Elsac River. And this river is amazing. Glacial whitewater, high volume. We are in the first of a few lakes. The next big lake with a glacier is Alsec Glacier, Alsec Lake. And then we'll eventually take out near the Gulf of Alaska, Pacific Ocean, Dry Bay. But as we row across this lake on this sunny, calm day, I am graced by the presence of two of my guests on this commercial river expedition. And they have ran more rivers than any ever guests that I've ever had. So I thought, you know what? It's a calm day. Maybe they might be open letting me interview them. So I'm sitting with Scott and Heather. They're avid explorers, avid adventurers. Heather is a gynecological surgeon based in Arizona. And Scott, you didn't tell me how to introduce yourself, but I know that you've traveled the world for work and for play, and you most certainly are eloquent and like your philosophy, so I'm really excited to sit with you both. My first question for you, as we float here, is this. What does it look like? What are you looking at? People listening all over the world, but specifically in Missoula, Montana, they cannot see what you're looking at right now. So I was wondering if you could both just take a moment to hold this phone and not drop it into the lake <laughs> and describe what you see. I'll spin us around a little bit. Too. It is a calm lake and straight ahead is a gigantic glacier and off to the right are about 20 house size icebergs of varying shapes some of which we've named on our trip here like the swan or the Loch Ness monster or one looks like a little hotel because it has right angles and then on either side are these gigantic mountains that are still snow-capped. And then on the complete other side is a 2,000-foot mountain with multiple waterfalls. Quite picturesque. And more so than what I see, it's what I hear. I hear in the distance 
the waterfalls that Heather mentioned, the occasional dipping of the oar into the water, but most of all, I hear the sound of peace. It's a very quiet, calm sound. It's a sound that that I yearn for every place else I'm at in life, but can only get when I come out to places like this. So Scott and Heather mentioned the oars that you, I'm sorry, you're gonna hear them in the background. There's a little squeak, a little bit of water splashage, so hopefully it's not too distracting, but I am rowing across a lake right now, so we gotta keep rowing. My first question for you both is about your childhood adventures. Where did you grow up? How was adventure part of your childhood? You guys have run over a hundred rivers all over the world, so the evolution of you as explorers of the river. So I grew up in, in Michigan, land of many, many lakes, and from a very young age, I found myself drawn to being out on the lakes, out on the rivers, whether it be canoeing or on a rowboat or in an inner tube or whatever else it might happen to be. From there, you know, I started doing more things, and, and it was through the vehicle of Boy Scouts, but spent a lot of years camping, worked at camps for several summers, started teaching things like outdoor skills, survival skills, those kinds of things. Um, ended, off at the, ended up at the age of 14 going off out west to New Mexico and hiking around in the mountains for three weeks. Turned out to be a seminal experience for me to be able to do that and to realize that you know, I could actually find my way on my own and get things done then. And then from there, it really evolved into just realizing that while I spent a good bit of my life indoors, working in offices and more about that later, but uh, every time I'd get outdoors onto a river, every time I'd go get up on a mountain, every time I'd go find a trail, there was a trail less traveled, I found myself feeling the way I wanted to feel and not feeling like I had to go search for something. It was, in essence, finding myself found. My experience is totally different because I grew up above a motorcycle shop in rural Pennsylvania. And the adventure for me was riding motorcycles and going camping in a motorhome. And I wasn't an outdoor person. And then I met Scott and we decided to go on a vacation. And I was like, hey, let's go on a cruise. And this was back when you still used a travel agent. And he came back and he's like, well, we're not going to go on a cruise. I said, oh, Windjammer Cruise, a smaller boat. He's like, well, how about a nine-day trip on the Vovo River in Chile, rafting? And I was like, oh, okay. I was young. I wanted to travel, so I didn't really care how. And then we commenced our trip, and it was overnight plane, overnight train in Chile that was not Amtrak, mind you, and another eight-hour bus ride. And I get to the river, and mind you, I had never camped. I had never pooped in the woods, so to speak. And I got there, and I looked at him, and I was like, I don't want to be here. I'm scared. I'm really out of my element. But he helped me, and a gal named Julie Munger, who I later learned was a big-time river guide, um, sort of took me under her wing and taught me how to paddle and took the raft out into a pool one day, and we flipped it over and over and over again, and, and then that's how it happened, and it was one of the best trips of my life, and then I decided it was the best way to see a place, and eventually you realize that you travel all over the world and raft all these rivers, and you understand that 
everyone is really the same. They eat different food. They sort of look differently than you do. But at the end of it all, everyone's really the same. Well, um, because we're talking about the B.O.B.O. River, I think that maybe it might make sense to just dive into that adventure and talk about that river. Sure, let's talk about the B.O. then a little bit. The B.O.B.O. River, located in the northern part of Patagonia down in Chile. And the river is both a significant river because it was a one of the best international downriver trips you could do. By that, what I mean is it's a river that started in its headwaters and you got a couple of days of gorgeous river coming down out of the mountains, beautiful countryside, great scenery. And as you move down the river, the river changed every day. What you saw on day one was a different river than day two, was a different river than day three. And as you get into the later days, four and five and six, you started getting down into some incredible canyons with some spectacular rapids in them. Some of the rapids down there that were particularly famous, there's a, a rapid by the name of Lost Jack, about a quarter mile long, just dropping over boulder upon boulder upon boulder, crashing downward on it, leading right straight down into Lava South. Lava South, named after lava from the Grand Canyon, which is a 90-degree turn in the river where this entire river of about 15,000 cubic feet per second of water decides to land on a wall and go sloshing directly to the right off that wall. So this river goes through these canyons, and the three canyons there are all completely unique. Um, in particular, one of the canyons, a canyon of 100 waterfalls, is literally a canyon where the water is squirting out of the walls all around you the entire way you're going through it. Um, the last canyon, the Royal Flush Gorge, has two kinds of significance. One, it was a canyon that was particularly spectacular from a rapids perspective. And the rapids there were the ace, the king, the queen, the jack, and the ten. So it had each of the different rapids there named after the you know the deck of cards. And they were all each unique, spectacular class five rapids. But the other significant part about the BO with that particular uh, gorge is that that gorge was being dammed up when we were down there in 1994. The dam was nearly built and, in fact, you know, was finished off the next year. And this spectacular river, uh, half of the river was gone after that dam was completed. And not just the river, but all of the farmlands around it and all the Mapuche Indian natives that were living there that got displaced by it, etc. And, you know, that was a fairly significant event for Chile and for myself individually is that that started me on the path of focusing on a lot of river conservation projects. And I'm sure we can talk about more on that later, but I've spent a lot of time in Chile since then, mostly focused on river conservation. So, you know, that river itself, you know, was fairly seminal in a lot of ways in my life, beyond just being, you know, a spectacular international river trip. We are on Lake Lowell. A glacier just cracked open in front of me. Lake Lowell, which is in the largest protected wilderness area in the world. We're floating on the Alsec River. It's a 12-day expedition, and I'm speaking with Heather and Scott. Now, Scott, you're a river conservationist like myself, and rather than return to it later, let's talk about conservation on the rivers in South America, maybe in particular the work that you did on the Biobio. The Biobio River, and this is many people before me, made attempts to stop the dam on the Biobio River unsuccessfully, but it became a catalyst for both a lot of folks from the U.S. who spent time down in Chile developing different kinds of organizations to help protect the rivers in Patagonia, 
And probably even more importantly, it spurred a tremendous environmental movement in Chile amongst the Chilean people. What's really happened, if you fast forward from 1995 till now, is that the threat of dams and the rivers in Patagonia has been largely eliminated. Originally, the threat of dams was very real because the water rights to all the rivers in Patagonia had been sold at the end of the Pinochet regime to a company by the name of Endesa, an Italian power company whose goal was to basically dam up all those rivers, flood a good bit of Patagonia, and then turn around and sell that power over into Argentina and Brazil, in essence, giving very little value to the people of Chile and destroying a tremendous amount of incredibly spectacular environmental treasures. So that threat, though, as a result of both the work of you know, many international organizations, Waterkeeper Alliance, Fudalifu Riverkeeper, uh, Patagonia, Sinraspresos, number of different organizations now, uh, as well as you know th- tens of thousands of Chileans who joined that movement and had various different protests at the presidential palace, etc. The pressure built on Endesa to the point where about five, six, seven-ish years ago now, Endesa formally and publicly renounced their water rights to all those rivers, and. You know, sometimes people are skeptical when a corporation says something like that and they think they'll come right back to it. But in this case, not only did they renounce their water rights, but they went ahead and took a 300 plus million dollar hit to their balance sheet of the money they'd already invested in Chile and wrote it all off. They took the stock price hit, etc. So in reality, they really did do this. This wasn't just words they were saying to calm down an environmental movement. This was an action that, you know, was a permanent action as a result of the environmental movement. So now in Chile, the work now becomes really a three-part process in those rivers. Part one is basically getting the water rights back to the people. And there's a process underway that's a a, a temporary fix to be able to put water reserves in place so that those water rights are now recouped and reserved for the people of Chile. And longer term, as Chile works on rewriting its constitution, ideally those water rights will then become part of the Chilean owned by the people of Chile as a result of the constitutional process permanently. The second thing that's going on now is that, you know, the organizations in Chile really need to focus on water quality because development is increasing in Patagonia. So there's an immense focus on the water quality. And then the third part of the agenda in in Patagonia is usage. In the same way that, you know, you would expect national parks in the U.S. or in other countries as usage grows, you have to be very cognizant of making sure that usage is appropriate usage. The same thing must happen in Chile, too. You've got to make sure that people value the asset that they're part of when they go out in the wilderness. You've got to make sure they respect what it takes to be able to keep that asset as pristine as possible so that not just they can enjoy it, but generations after them can enjoy it. So that's in essence a three-part agenda now in Chile. Reserve the water rights, protect the water quality, and then protect the usage. I would love to now talk a little bit about changing climate, climate volatility. We are watching it unfold in front of our eyes right now. As in the background, you might hear the glacier caving in. And yeah, that's been happening for a long time, but it's happening faster now. And we're going to dive deep into that while we row across the lake. I guess, Scott, when you look out at the ice and you're thinking about a changing climate, and we hear stories from our 
trip leader and my friend Thirsty, who's leading this expedition. He was talking about when the glacier came across that massive rock that's sticking out now. It's like the size of a shopping mall. And just how much he's seen this entire ecosystem from the Arctic to the Alsec change over the past 30 years, something like that. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, when you're talking about the glacier, and let me just describe it a little bit too. You know, the glacier that we're looking at is receded miles now from where it was even as little as 30 years ago. And it's a measure that you could very easily say, you know, why don't we find a way to reverse that? Why don't we bring this glacier back? But one of the observations I've made about our planet, about people in general, is that going back is not something that we tend to do naturally. We may talk about it sometimes, but it's not a natural occurrence. What we tend to do is we tend to evolve forward. And each generation finds ways to change the world in, in a manner that you know, creates a more positive world for that generation. So when I look at the glacier, as opposed to thinking about just this glacier and what it might take to restore that, I think about what are all the other things, though, that the next several generations of people can do that will ultimately change the world in a, in a positive manner. And it's not just, you know, restoring it to what it was. It's really continuing to make it into something different going forward that's positive. So maybe we don't have this glacier come back, but maybe we do take large areas of land, otherwise unprotected and protected, and let it grow up and let it become its own thing. Let nature have the opportunity to restore it itself. We don't need to be the vehicle for it. We need to be the catalyst for it. Nature will take it to where it needs to go to, but we need to be the people who give nature the opportunity. So it's not just here in the Arctic, but it could be in Nebraska. It's not just here in the Arctic, but it could be in Arizona. Wherever you might happen to be, you know, think about where can you give nature a chance now to become what nature needs to be and in return, nature will give back to us, you know, a planet that will be the kind of planet that we can exist in and coexist with nature in a very positive manner. That's the way I think about it, is it's more about how do we create the evolution going forward that we want to have, not go back to a history or a past that's seemingly irrecoverable, because it may be. It's more about building our future, less about going back to our past. One acronym that always comes to my mind and has always sort of followed me in life is BEEF, ironically enough. Um, capital B, capital E, capital E, capital F. So once again, grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Girls basketball was king. My girls basketball coach taught us to do foul shots by using that acronym. Balance, eyes, elbows, and follow through. And that acronym has sort of followed me through my whole life. When I was training in residency, when you're in the operating room, you have to keep your feet balanced because you're standing for a long time. Your eyes always sort of have to be focused on what you're doing, but aware of what's going on around you. Your elbows have to be tucked in so you don't ruin your shoulders. And to be a good surgeon, you have to have follow through. 
but that is more of a global acronym that I've now used through my whole life and what nature actually gives me. It sort of gives me all of those things in a way that being in a city or being even in a small town doesn't. You know, you're out here and you see the balance that happens. You know, you see the carnivores, you know, you see the herbivores and they all live in a balance and rely on each other. Your eyes might go to the tallest peak or the largest glacier that you're looking at. And then all of a sudden you see sort of the small alpine squirrel that all of us looked at in camp. Um, Elbows. Elbows is always interesting. I always tell people we live in a world where everyone keeps their elbows out and is ready to push people and things out of our way. So tucking your elbows in, sort of going with the flow, you know, accepting people as they are. And then follow through. It's very easy to sort of say, oh, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to make a difference. I'm never going to change that. That person's never going to change. And follow through can make a big difference in someone's life. You know, you can really help people with one sentence and get their mind thinking. So that's what comes to mind as we're floating on this lake today. Scott, you and I have been chatting a little bit about how to bring it back home. The system we live in is connected. If you think about it, it's one planet, one atmosphere, one ultimate weather system, one ultimate global food system, one ultimate water system. Everything around us is in some way or another tied together. There are really no independent events that happen around our planet. So when we have climate volatility and we have in some places more severe storms, in some places, higher temperatures, other places, lower temperatures. In some places around the world, we find out that we have a lot more rain and flooding. In some places, we find out that the hurricanes that used to happen once every five years now happen once every year. And when they happen, they're stronger, more severe. We find out that the wildfires that are happening and the droughts that are happening you know, go on for not just a couple of years, but a decade or two decades, and those wildfires become far more severe. All of these things are about the system that we have that's becoming more volatile over time. And that volatility has implications for all of us. In some parts of the country, the Southeast for instance, we find out that that volatility means droughts and less water, and hence, we pay more for our water bills every year. When we find out we go to places like California or Florida, in California where there's wildfire catastrophes, Florida or Louisiana, hurricane catastrophes, we find out that when we go to get homeowner's insurance, we can't buy it from anybody anymore because no private insurer will any, any longer underwrite those particular areas of the country because of the amount of risk of catastrophic hurricanes. We go to areas in the North Midwest where previously tornadoes weren't a big issue. Now all of a sudden we're finding out tornadoes are showing up in areas of the country that never had a tornado before. So all of these things in aggregate you know, are impacting us. And it's the volatility of each of the different 
environments we live in, our local environments, which all connect up to the global environment, is really the root cause of a lot of these challenges that we have. And it's not the kind of thing that is an easy thing to fix. In fact, fixing may not be even the way to think about it. But we do have to think about how we can continue to evolve as our communities, in our local communities, in our countries, and as a global people together in ways that we can basically manage the climate volatility we have and help develop the planet into the planet that we need to live on. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. It can happen in small ways and big ways. The small ways that can happen can be the individual actions that people take. And there's certainly plenty of things that people talk about with that all the time. But some of the medium and big size ones can be pretty important too. Find a piece of land and let it grow up. Let nature do its work. Protect some areas. Find ways to let the, let the water that you have be conserved. All kinds of different things that can be done, but those are the types of things we need to be thinking about as we go forward because the climate volatility that we're experiencing every day right now is impacting our lives every day. And it's no longer a theory. It's not a scientific hypothesis anymore. It's something we can see happening around us on a day in and day out basis. And we can see it all the way down to the way that we have to spend our money every day. I'm sitting on a raft with Scott and Heather, two of the most well-versed river adventurers that I've taken rafting. You guys really go for it and explore the world. And they're exploring with me today on the Alsec. You know, a lot of times people ask me, Mandela, do you actually record these interviews on location? I wish you could see me now. <laughs> you know, I use a iPhone to record my shows because I've broken every other piece of equipment. And it's the simplest thing that happens to be with me all the time because this was an impromptu interview today. And leaning forward to try to speak into the mic while I row the boat. And we are approaching our first section of high volume whitewater and we could hear it. We are on a 12-day Alsec River expedition flowing towards Dry Bay, Gulf of Alaska, Pacific Ocean. We started in the Yukon and we flowed into British Columbia, crossed back into Alaska yesterday. And the last time I was speaking with Scott and Heather was on Lake Lowell, which was fed by another glacier. But now I'm going to go ahead and hand the high-tech recording equipment <laughs> to my guest, Scott. And I was wondering, Scott, tell us about this lake and this glacier, and what do you see when you look around right now? So as we sit here on the edge of Alsec Lake, you know, we've got an incredible set of layered views in front of us. We can see the icebergs across the water, all falling off and floating away from the glaciers. We see a whole layer of vegetation then. Above the vegetation, we get a layer of peaks that have snow all of them still. But the peaks, though, are somewhat invisible to us as we've got a cloud layer above that. So this layered effect is, you know, a fairly, fairly special and encompassing sort of feel as we sit here on the edge of the lake. And I'm looking directly at a massive glacier, one of, I don't know how many I can see with in where I'm sitting right now, but at least three massive glaciers and it's pouring over the valley. It's got nice light filtering over it, and then we have that glacier blue out in the water, and uh, it's calm. But, Scott, we're on a river trip, right? And so what is being on a river trip, what does running rivers mean to you? You've run over 100 rivers around the world. You've been doing it for a long time. Tell us about that. Sure, river trips have been 
part of my life, starting with you know, shorter trips when I was much younger, and now the trips get longer and uh, far more interesting as we've moved on through the years. To me, though, you know, a river trip has a couple of different aspects to it. The first aspect is seeing the world in the way that many of folks saw it centuries ago when they first explored some of these areas. The highways of the globe initially were the rivers. And, you know, while it's great to be on a river for whitewater and for other sorts of reasons, to me the bit, most important thing about being on a river is just traveling by water and seeing the world in the way that you can see it from that river. Another thing, though, that river trips uh, provide for me is really a, a perfect analogy to life to encapsulate it. The challenges of finding your way down a river and the opportunities of what you find when you go down those rivers are similar to what I find in life. You know, current to me is almost an analogy for time. You know, you flow downstream through the river, you flow forward through time every day. As you move through time, as you move down the river, you know, sometimes there are obstacles you encounter. Those obstacles are things that you need to overcome in order to continue your journey. Sometimes those obstacles contain certain risks in them. Those risks need to be assessed, and you need to think about how you're going to, you know, overcome those obstacles, but do it in ways that, you know, are, are suitable for where you're trying to get to without taking undue risk. You know, scouting a rapid is a perfect analogy of life. Sometimes you look at a rapid and you look, you know, from the exit all the way up to the entry of the rapid. And as you're looking at that, you have to think to yourself, is there one move that if I don't make this move, the consequences are dire? Well, often in life, you don't want to do something where there's only one way that you can do it right. And if you do it any other way, the consequences will be dire. Sometimes the compounding of those things is something to consider, too. You know, if you look at a rapid, it takes 10 moves, and those 10 moves have to be done exactly in order. That can be more complex, and, you know, sometimes you may not want to do that. Ultimately, to me, the rapid is really about, you know, how do I overcome that obstacle? And also knowing when's the right time to just walk around it, too. You know, there's other things that happen on a river, too, that are also really, you know, analogous to life. Think about from a leadership perspective. You know, leaders often have to think about goals that they want to achieve. And those goals may be very lofty and far out in the future. Well, going down a long river are similar to that. You know where you want to end up in the end, but you have all kinds of uncertainties between where you're at and where you're going to. Leading through uncertainty and leading through all the gray that happens in life is part of leadership every day. So I always talk to leaders when I'm working with them in terms of developing their skill sets about how to think about all those uncertainties. How do you stop and take them apart one by one? How do you think about how to move past them? How do you also look at those uncertainties when they become opportunities? Sometimes the, you know, in a river trip, you're going along and you, know, you find something that you never expected to find before. Maybe that's the time to stop and pause and spend a couple of days there and really explore it and understand it, become intimate with it. Those are the kinds of things, though, that happen on a river trip that, you know, to me, are all very important. Lastly, though, for river trips, river trips are about really stepping away from the world that we've created with all the electronics, social media, etc. When you're getting out on a river trip, the phone doesn't work. There is no communications coming to you. And that's a time to really step back and reflect on yourself and reflect on the people around you. It's a very important time for people 
and nature. And when you just have people in nature together and you take the noise of the modern, modern world away, sometimes you discover things you never thought you could possibly discover about yourself and others. So whether it be, you know, looking at a river as an analogy for life, looking at a river as a way to step away or looking at a way looking at the river as a way to achieve goals and work through uncertainty. There's lots of ways you can think about a river and, you know, help that to improve your own personal capabilities. Beautiful, Scott. I really enjoyed in particular the part where you talked about looking at that rapid scout and that rapid and potentially walking around it, but you didn't do that the other day. You didn't walk around. Oh, in the distance we hear the caving in of a massive glacier. We're sitting next to the shore on Alsec Lake. You know, Thirsty, our trip leader, my friend, fellow guide, he said that the waves here get pretty big too sometimes from these icebergs that are coming in, so I'm keeping an eye out for little tsunamis. Anyway, Scott, you didn't walk around a rapid the other day. You flew around one. Tell us about that. We had the opportunity that if we wanted to, we could have gone and run a canyon on the Alsek River Turnback Canyon. Now, the name alone should probably give you some indication of what's inside that canyon. The, the canyon is a canyon that, as I understand it, was run a few times by some folks in kayaks, originally back in the 1970s by Walt Blackadar. But um, it's not the kind of place I ever really want to be. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a canyon that has an awful lot of water and a very tight little space and all kinds of stuff going on. So we kind of took the prudent approach on this trip prudent approach being that of a helicopter mm-hmm. uh, you know a helicopter with a you know a nice sling on it quick passenger load and three loads of rafts and other equipment and then another passenger load in the back into that and next thing you know we're at the bottom of that canyon in a very nice safe way we got to see the canyon certainly and uh, I kind of like this helicopter portage thing not a bad deal at all not a bad deal at all. Mm. Uh, if anything else, it's causing me to think about it. Maybe I should go and think about being that helicopter pilot someday. But beyond that, you know, a good day. Yeah. yeah that was just a couple of days ago. Um, I really enjoyed that as well. And I don't want to ever run Turnback Canyon. Coming to the end of this interview here, sitting next to Alsac Lake. We're surrounded by water right now. We're surrounded by frozen water in the form of glaciers. We're surrounded by... 36 degree water in the form of this lake. We don't really know exactly what the river's running, but it's between 100 and 150,000 cubic feet per second. Friends, that's big water. If you're in Missoula, I can tell you that on average, the Clark Fork River spikes between 35, 45, pushing it maybe 1,000 cubic feet per second. So 150,000 cubic feet per second is a lot of water. For someone listening who is quite drawn to the concept of doing their part on behalf of protecting water. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened recently with the EPA and our access to clean water. So, Scott, I just would love for you to elaborate on the concept of how someone might be able to protect water in their area and also why it's so important. So, as a reminder, my background is, you know, in physics and you know, a lot of technical sort of fields, but I've also spent quite a few years working in conservation of rivers. And my observation is that there's a fairly simple framework to look at whenever you want to start thinking about a piece of, a, a, a body of water that's around you. Mm-hmm. Number one, I always start with, what can I do to make sure the quality of the water is protected? The most important thing, first and foremost, is that we've got to protect the quality of water. As you just mentioned, you talked about the Clean Water Act and the changes in that. 
you know, the original interpretation of the Clean Water Act basically said that, you know, the water that was protected, along with any other water that fed into that, could also be pulled into those protections, too. And that ability to pull all the water within a watershed together has been loosened now. And that's something that doesn't make sense because, you know, water flows from one body to the next to the next. And if you have bad water in one place, it's going to create bad water in a second place downstream somewhere. So we should really focus first on, you know, the quality of the water that we have and making sure that we protect that. The second thing, though, then, is what's around the edges of the water? We really have to focus on, you know, maintaining what's on the shorelines of our lakes, on the riverbanks of our rivers, and having as much natural vegetation there as possible. To the extent there is a border of natural vegetation there, not only will we have cleaner water because that natural vegetation will help keep turbidity in the water down, help filter out other harmful elements that could end up in the water, but it also improves our experience when we're on that water because what we see then is the water in the way that it was originally created with the natural vegetation all around it. So to me, you start with the water quality, you extend water quality out by working on the banks, and then the last piece, which everybody can do, is usage. When we use water, we certainly should use it personally in a very respectful way and not create problems for that water. But then also we can look at it as other people are using it too and put usage rules in place. And rules that are you know, common sense, not rules that are burdensome, but rules that are common sense so that the usage of the water is for the benefit of everybody and not for the benefit of the individual or the selfish. So those are the things that I would focus on. Starting with the water quality, absolutely essential. Working on the shorelines and the banks second, and working on the usage third. When I work with people, it's all about helping all of the people that I'm working with, including myself, continue to improve. Not a complicated equation. I'm sitting here kind of nervous because of all these waves that are coming into camp from these icebergs (laughs) that are caving off. By the way, I'm sitting here with bear spray pushing into my hip because we're in the land of the highest population of grizzly bears per capita in North America. And so it's just a wonderful place to record an interview. So stoked to sit here with you, Scott. But I'm just curious for myself and those listening out there how we might find out more information on your work as a waterkeeper on the Futalafu. Yeah, so the Futalafu River, which obviously I have a lot of passion around, there's a Futalafu River Keeper, futalafuriverkeeper.org, which you can look at to find out more information on that. You can also get to the Futalafu River Keeper through the Waterkeeper Alliance website. The Riverkeeper is a member of the Waterkeeper Alliance, and the Waterkeeper Alliance is a you know, global organization of riverkeepers, coastal keepers, lake keepers, etc., all focused on you know, protecting the water that we have, and in particular the water quality that we have. So you know, we can always get to the Riverkeeper through that, too. You know, in terms of participating in some of those, too, it's always good to be able to donate to some of those. I will tell you, if you're a U.S. person, U.S. citizen, or somebody living in the U.S. and you donate U.S. dollars to the Futalafu Riverkeeper, it will go far, much farther than you can imagine it would go as somebody coming from the U.S. Just to give you a little bit of concept of that, the Futalafu Riverkeeper has been around for about 12 years now, 
has a team of an executive director and operations leader that works full-time in the town of Fulufu on that watershed. Has about seven part-time people that work there on it, along with a large set of community volunteers. That entire organization is funded for you know, roughly forty to $60,000 a year. At eighty dollars to $120,000 a year, that organization could do everything it wants to do for the Riverkeeper. But by context, that amount of money in the U.S. wouldn't go very far. That amount of money in Chile goes an incredible distance to helping protect the great rivers of Patagonia. Scott, let's end your show with three bits of advice that you would be willing to share with whoever's listening out there. The first piece of advice I'd have for everybody is to figure out who you are, figure out what your philosophy is, figure out what works for you every day. Everybody's different, but you know, not a lot of people necessarily spend enough time thinking about themselves and who they really are. For myself, until I started writing that down and then rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it year after year after year, I really didn't get a good sense of who I was, but it helped an awful lot. My second piece of advice is put people first. You know, we have people everywhere around us. You know, treat people the way you want to be treated. Enjoy people. People are what makes everything special for us as we, as we travel our way through life. And that's something else that, you know, when I was much younger, I thought I wanted to work with computers and physics because I didn't have to deal with all those crazy people that did weird things. And it turned out that I liked the people part better than the computer part. Funny how life, you know, shapes you over time. My last piece of advice is have fun. But, you know, have fun in however you define fun. For me, fun can be working, fun can be figuring out a problem, fun can be staying up all night and learning something. It's not necessarily other people's idea of fun, but for me, it's fun. And I'm okay having my kind of fun and not necessarily having your kind of fun. But you got to figure out what fun is for you and you got to be able to have that. Those would be my pieces of advice for you. Scott, thank you so much for joining me on the Trail Less Traveled. Thank you. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and if you don't catch the premiere, you can catch the podcast, which is available everywhere. The full show archive and lots of pictures, information about outreach, and a way to connect with me is available by visiting traillesstraveled.net. The Trail Less Traveled is the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. The show is recorded on location around the world in order for me to connect with these adventurers and interview them in their natural habitat. Tonight's interview was recorded in the most remote location I have ever recorded an episode. In the heart of the Alsek River which slices through the largest non-polar ice field in the world. I work as an expedition guide, and I was guiding a 12-day expedition, which starts in the Yukon Territory. We flowed through British Columbia and ended in Dry Bay on the Gulf of Alaska. This is the largest protected wilderness area in the world, which encompasses over 38,000 square miles. It's also home to the largest density of grizzly bears in North America, and it is high volume whitewater. The Alsek River was flowing at 105,000 cubic feet per second when we entered Dry Bay. The expedition itself included a helicopter portage of Turnback Canyon, navigating icebergs, and all of the wonderful things that come along with running expeditions way up north in the Yukon and Alaska. 
I would like to give a big shout out to Big Sky Bikes. Just this week, I took in my fat bike and my full suspension bike for a tune-up, and I am blown away by how much better my bikes feel after that tune-up. I've been going into Big Sky Bikes for almost a decade now. They are so friendly, knowledgeable, and have always taken care of my bikes when they needed to tune up. If you are free on Thursday evenings, you can join the community ride. Find Big Sky Bikes on social media, and hopefully I will see you on the trail soon. My adventure tip this evening involves rafting in the Arctic. My friends, when you're running a whitewater expedition in the Arctic, you do not need to bring the fancy peanut butter that requires you to steer it. It's going to be cold. It's going to be torturous to steer that peanut butter. So, I'm a fan of nice peanut butter, but when you're rafting or doing an expedition in the Arctic, or anywhere cold, you probably want to get the peanut butter that does not require steering. (laughs) Just saying. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends, in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please, remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Please use your voice and speak up on behalf of the wildlife and the resources that you love.